Hold on to your butts. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to episode 78 of the Civil War Breakfast on Podcast. Join, as always, by my co-host, Mary, a woman who learned her Cleveland Indians were mathematically eliminated from the playoffs the day the MLB lockout ended. I am merely a faded baseball bag named Darren. How are you, Mary? How are you doing? I'm great, and I believe they changed their name to Guardians now. And yeah, I'm still not over that 2016 World Series, which I still will call the forever the Great Halt of baseball. Oh, <laughs> the, the rain delay that, that yeah, doomed you the, and benefited the, the, the Great Halt. So, what's going on? How are things? Good, good. Uh, finally got some spring weather here in southwestern Ontario. So, yeah, it's going pretty good. And heading south, well, not really south. I guess I'm heading east this weekend to uh southeast probably huh? the lovely town of plymouth massachusetts so mm-hmm. looking forward to that well we got a fun action-packed episode tonight. before we get started the question i always ask you of course is what are you drinking tonight Mara? uh i'm drinking down in moxie by great lakes brewery out of toronto out of toronto and i don't have a dan sickles mug so there i've just hinted what we're doing tonight i'm drinking mm-hmm. out of my general mead mug who which is funny that's kind of the uh Big rivalry for for Uncle Dan there, but as much as I say I'm Team Mead, I can also say that I am Team Sickles. So, divided loyalty. I believe you can be both. (laughs) Okay. Well, since you didn't ask, I am drinking called Splintered Sunlight IPA, which is just a basic IPA. And of course, I didn't have a Sickles mug myself, so I'm drinking out of the company mug, the Civil War Breakfast Club mug. So, Mary, in any case, you know, um, we're going to talk about Gettysburg tonight. We haven't talked about Gettysburg in a while. There are three things that you can never do while sitting at the mine in Gettysburg. You know what they are? First Corps broke first. You cannot shake Bill Fresnito's hand. And the third thing is you cannot say anything positive about Dan Sims. <laughs> and you know, and so what we're going to do is we're going to take one of those three tonight and we're going to see um, about that. So we are going to be joined by our, our special guest tonight, our friend Jim Hessler. He's a Gettysburg licensed battlefield guide. He's the co-host of the fantastic Battle of Gettysburg podcast as well as the author of the books, Gettysburg Peach Orchard, Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, and this one, Sickles at Gettysburg, which I've read many times. So when you want to discuss all things Uncle Dan, Jim certainly has more than just one leg to stand on. See what I did there? Uh, uh, yes, How very, very clever. Hey, Jim, yeah, how Welcome to Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You know, you brought back Reliance Mine Memories. It was at the mine one time where two drunks at the bar accosted me and said that I should have been shot and then hanged for treason, for disobeying Meade's orders. Like not Sickles should have been, but I should have been. So, you know, the Reliance Mind just brings back so many happy Dan Sickles memories for me. Well, we have some happy memories ourselves. Mary remembers almost all of them. So it's pretty cool. Mine's certainly a fun place to go. But so obviously tonight we're going to talk Dan Sickles and arguably that union general who brings out, just like you said, probably the most emotion out of any general at Gettysburg and not talking about the emotions that Oliver Otis Howard brings out of Mary. We're talking about different types of emotions here, right? So just a mention of Sickles' name seems to rile up the masses and and Mm -hmm. for those who study the battle, right? And so he disobeyed direct orders and he was a disaster. And his actions at Gettysburg were a fiasco. My personal favorite is he was a scoundrel, right? Um, So the question is, you know, is were they though, right? And we're going to talk tonight about maybe some of the lead up and the early part of that battle at Gettysburg 
to determine if that historical memory is really accurate. And obviously, Jim, you are the guru for all things sickles, so we figured you were the obvious person mm-hmm. to have on with us. Yeah. And one thing I want to ask you, Jim, is is why why sickles for writing these books about him and studying yeah. him like you do? Yeah, it's, no, it's a, that's a great opening question. And you know, people assume, oh my God, you must be a sickles fan. You know, when people found out I was writing the the sickles of Gettysburg book, the number one question that I would get from people is, whose side are you going to be on? And I'd be like, well, you know, as a historian, I'm not supposed to be on anybody's mm-hmm. side. They will, well, you bet, you know, you better not take down General Meade or I'm going to be, uh, but, you know, I did not have any real background as a Sickles enthusiast or somebody who was even all that interested in him. When I became a licensed battlefield guide in 2003, I just sort of stumbled into the fact that I liked telling Sickles stories and you can get through the battle and putting troops over here in this regiment and this brigade over there kind of thing. But very often when the non-battle person was kind of dozing off in the back seat, you could say, you know, and this guy shot his wife's lover. And, you know, they immediately perk up and say, tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. And that statue over there should have been a sickle statue, but he embezzled money. Tell me more about that. <laughs> just, you know, and it's just, I found that I enjoyed telling the sickle stories, but the books that were out there at the time didn't really do it for me. Mm-hmm. So I started deep diving and researching. One thing led to another. And here we are tonight talking about them. Nice. Well, he had it all the, the off the, the off the course that we talked about. He, you know, he was a, you know, womanizer. He was arrogant, mm-hmm. probably a Yankees fan. He had all the bad traits, right? <laughs> hey, hey, you know, I mean, your guest is a Yankees I, fan. I, you know. I, did my, I did my homework, Jim. I know. But in, but in case, uh, so he was brilliant. He was very well appreciated by his own tro- on his own troops. The general in command of his third brigade in Bernie's division, Philippe Brigitte Denis de Carandin de Trobriand, you know, he he says of Sickles, you know, he was a gifted with high degree that is multiplicity of uh, faculties, which has given rise to saying that that a Yankee is ready for everything and obstacles do not discourage him. So you can always tell by what the people who work for him think. You, you want to know how, how a guy mm-hmm. is, ask how his, yeah. ask his employees how they are. Right, how and, do you treat the people under you? Right. Yeah. Now to say his background is colorful, certainly, and that, that's, that's what makes him very intriguing. I mean, you can study Sickles, or you can study Sedgwick or Slocum. Who are you going to pick if you're someone who's looking for just an understanding of a colorful Civil War guy? But... I think when we study his activity at Gettysburg, it's important to look at what he was dealing with and what he was presented with in that situation. He, you know, he's the only corps commander of the seven who's not from West Point. He's a political general, right? He, you know, he was a guy going back to his own history. You know, he, you know, he went to NYU and he passed the bar. He was a lawyer of all things. So right off the bat, you know, he's going to talk his way out of a situation, which he's good at. <laughs> 1852, he, he's 32 years old. He marries a 15-year-old named Teresa Bagley. Of course, as you hinted with, he, he famously shot and killed her lover, Philip Barton Key, yeah. at Lafayette Square, Washington. He's that first case of temporary insanity that is successfully tried in American jurisprudence by Edwin Stanton. He's very famous at that point. And so going into the war, he's certainly somebody who I think is already in that public mainstream. Yeah, all of the above, right? And when I when I first started coming to Gettysburg, and I first started coming to Gettysburg, probably the, the early 1990s, you know, as I said, I became a battlefield guide in 2003. But roughly for the first 15 
years or so, the interpretation that I often heard or stumbled upon in the park usually was along the lines of what you just said, Darren. Sickles was an idiot. Only an idiot would violate the fish hook and move out of position and things like that. And, and something that just didn't ring true to me was the guy's resume. The fact that he is an, a diplomat, politician, attorney, all of those things. Now, I always say about Sickles to be fair and unbalanced or fair and balanced. Uh, I guess we can be unbalanced when we're talking <laughs> about Sickles. But I mean, to be fair and balanced about Sickles, he's one of those guys who often starts well and then maybe ends badly. And then he kind of goes on to the next thing. But I think the Detroit and comment about uh, obstacles do not stop him is spot on. And, and one of the things that I did always admire about Sickles was that you see this a couple of times during his life when he seems to be down and out. He picks himself off up. He dusts himself off and he goes on to the next thing. And you can't say that about many people. You certainly couldn't say that about anybody who was really an idiot. And if the guy was an idiot, uh, you know, he would not have half the resume that, that he did. So there's got to be something there that his contemporaries saw that all of the people today who hate him so enthusiastically are missing. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. Well, anybody who's read his papers knows how brilliant this guy actually is. I mean, this mm -hmm. is this is not somebody who fell off the turnip truck here. He's somebody who legitimately was probably a, would have been a genius in almost anything he tried. He came from a successful, rich family. Um, but again, he, you know, he's someone who, you know, he's very patriotic. And I think we would, Mary and I were talking earlier, yeah. but they, you could say a lot of things about Sickles. The thing you can, you cannot say is that he could not make a decision. Whether it was right or wrong, he, he could make a decision. And, you know, sometimes it was not the best decision, but certainly it was one that, one that he stuck with. But the problem with him is, you know, we'll talk about is that he never assumed any fault with anything, right? Nothing was ever wrong. Yeah. And, and so, and, and we'll, we'll get into that later on, but, you know, he, you know, he's going to raise his own brigade in New York City, um, and it's not recognized by the governor, Edward Morgan. It, it's a situation where his friendship, even though he's a Democrat with Abraham Lincoln, is one that's going to help forge that brigade. So it's going to be recognized as a brigade, even though New York doesn't. So he ends up raising that brigade. But as we look forward toward, towards Gettysburg, you know, he, he falls into that click there with Butterfield and Hooker and all those people, and he's automatically against Meade right off the bat because their personalities don't, just don't click. Yeah, I, I go into this a lot in my work. One of the things that interested me when I was first getting into the topic was I wanted to understand what were the real causes of any schisms between Sickles and me? Because again, the standard shallow interpretation is always Sickles was an amateur, Meade was a professional, and that set them apart. And that's again the soundbite version of history that you uh, that you always see on it. One of the things I went to, and I went into this in the Sickles book, when I was particularly doing research on supporting players like David Burney, I came who was one of Sickles' division commanders. I came to an appreciation that I think really a lot of the Meade-Sickles issues started probably about at the time of the Battle of Fredericksburg. So we're talking late 1862. And Meade and Bernie got into a dispute over whether or not Bernie had adequately supported Meade during Meade's breakthrough at Fredericksburg. I mean, it's a great story. I love Fredericksburg. But they get into this personality dispute Bernie then is then moving into sort of the third core clique, which includes Sickles, and that is including Joe Hooker and Dan Butterfield. And one of the one of the great, comical, almost hilarious things that you see during that early winter of 1863 is this social circuit that 
Hooker and his boys are establishing at army headquarters. All the generals are partying and they're drinking and they're going to balls and galas and weddings, you know, and they're saying stuff like, where are we getting all these women from? Somehow they're finding all these women in camp. (laughs) And then you have George Meade writing home to his wife saying things like, well, everyone was invited except me. I was the only general in camp who was not. I mean, it's sad. It's I can see Mary Mary kind of. He's a Philadelphia guy. No one likes that. Yeah, well, yeah, nobody likes Philly guys. Our little Bernie, problem being too Bernie was a Philly guy, Philly too, guy. But, but you know, but you know, I always kind of liken it to almost like the cool kids at the cafeteria. There's yeah. there's there's the part there's the party click, and then there's the engineers, Meade, Andrew Humphreys, Governor Warren. There's guys like that. They're probably sitting at the lunch table, you know, studying and reading their books, you know, while Sickles and Hooker are getting all the women in that. So yeah, early 1860, late 1862, early 1863, you sort of see the two of these guys going off on these very divergent paths, which of course is going to explode on July 2nd at Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that factors into it too um, is the political general aspect, you know, the political generals have to fight a little bit harder to make themselves respected and and recognized black Jack Logan, political general. He's actually, he's decent. You know, Mm -hmm. he's a little bit of a loose cannon, um, which is, I think why Sherman doesn't put him in command after McPherson gets killed um, at the battle of Atlanta, um, which works out for O.O. Howard. I mean, there's my, there's my first Howard reference, um, but, um, you know, he's, he's certainly not like Franz Siegel is probably one of the worst political generals out there. You know, when Sickles got command of the Corps, Howard's like right into Washington being like, okay, he got command over me. What the heck mm-hmm. is going on with that? Like, I, and you know, Howard's probably pulling that I'm from West Point and you gave this political general mm-hmm. So then that's when Howard ends up getting the 11th Corps. But I think that politi- being a political general somehow, that's kind of a strike against him and somebody like the eyes of Meade as well. Oh, yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. And Sickle, you're absolutely right. And Sickles never did live down the Philip Barton Key murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were there were people in the army that were still mocking him over that. So you have... You have a potentially shady background. I mean, hey, you had a, you were part of a noteworthy murder. You don't see that in the army very often. You have that. You have the political appointment versus the West Pointers and that sort of thing. And then you have the the personality differences between not only Sickles and Meade, but Sickles and his boys versus Meade and his boys. And I think it's I think if we've if I've got them all, that's probably the three factors that that come together. But like I said, too often in Gettysburg, we just make it we just make it amateur general versus West Pointer. Well, you know, West Point didn't translate didn't guarantee battlefield victories. And you mentioned Logan, uh, you know, not going to West Point didn't necessarily make you a loser. It was the kind of army where you could learn on the fly. You could learn on the job. You could rise to the level of your abilities. And I think where Sickles ultimately falls short, I've always said this, sort of that era when he goes from 
brigade to division and then eventually commanding a corps at Chancellorsville, I don't think he gets enough experience. It's kind of like one big battle and he's not there, but Hooker gets promoted. So let's give Sickles a division. And then he's in reserve at Fredericksburg, but you know, Hooker gets promoted again. So let's give Sickles a corps. And he doesn't get that. He doesn't get the on the job training, which I think would have been more crucial than a, than necessarily a West Point education. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm dismissing the West Point aspect of it. No, I think you're, I think you're right about that for sure that you know but he gets oh, good hold on hold on before we go on that's our first a boot of the night i'm trying to do my Canadian access here tonight's episode is a boot dan sickles okay i'm sorry darian carry on i just had to get that i was gonna say i, I, I was just, waiting I just, for that i'm immune to it i'm immune to it at this point it goes around my head so things are picking it up i just, just it's like you look by the ocean you don't smell the sea anymore yeah. you know same same deal but i mean sickles they give him two really good division guys and david ball bernie and you know andrew andrew humphreys He's got a really good artillery guy in George Randolph. Yeah. And he also, I mean, his aide, Henry Tremaine, you know, he's going to get a medal of honor at Risaka. Mm. So he's got a good group around him. So, you know, so he, for say what you will about, about Sickles' lack of experience, he's, he's going to get some good people. So, you know, as Gettysburg goes on to kind of phase in, you know, phase in Gettysburg, Meade's going to send that left wing, the first, the third, and the 11th into Gettysburg. And, you know, along with John Buford, of course, and, and they're going to do that reconnaissance and force thing. And this is where it's interesting when you read. And this really depends on who you read about Gettysburg, about oh, yeah. what, what the intention was, right? You could read the Gelzo theory about how he did it on his own. You could read David Mas uh, Ken Masterson Brown talking about the reconnaissance and force with, um, you know, the Dennis Mahan thing and the Clausewitz theory. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but regard whatever it is, they're going to be sent into Gettysburg and they're going to be going to do that. With the concept, if you're going to follow that that reconnaissance plan, they're going to go to Gettysburg, and they're going to fall back the big a big Pipe Creek uh, line, and that that again that's debated. That's what's great about Gettysburg is you can debate this stuff forever about what the ultimate plan was, but um, you know, does Sickles, you know, despite being that being a core commander, you know, he's going to ultimately end up reporting to Reynolds on this his left wing. So he has to serve two masters right off the bat. Exactly. He's going to serve Meade and he's going to serve Reynolds. And this is going to be the right. first of the confusing of Dan Sickles concept in the Gettysburg campaign. Right. So, you know, Meade wants him to move to Emmitsburg, Maryland, because he's afraid of that left wing because it's mm -hmm. vulnerable. And you've got Reynolds who wants to, is telling Sickles he wants him to move ahead to, uh, to Tannytown, a Tawny town. And so it's interesting because, you know, this is when Howard gets involved, too, mm -hmm. because Howard is kind of along with Reynolds saying, you know, um, move up and support him. So when you think of your Dan Sickles, you know, what do you do? And I think he astutely does both. Right. He, he brings four brigades with him. leaves two back in Emmitsburg. So right off the bat, he's like, well, I think I know what I'm doing with this. I'm going to try to serve two masters. But then Reynolds, he sends him that ambiguous quote. You, know, you better come up. If you're him, you know, how do you handle that? And so it's, I think right at the beginning, it's like when you're at the beginning of a job, at the beginning, you're kind of confused what you're doing. It sets that, it sets that plan for the rest of the campaign. I just think shit, Sickles never shakes it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we covered a lot there going from when Reynolds is placed in wing command up through the 30th mm -hmm. and then up, up through July 1st. 
One of the things I think about Sickles that is counter to the way historians have always looked at Sickles at Gettysburg is, and I've heard colleagues say this, I've heard colleagues or rangers or other folks interpret this on the field, basically, and I heard somebody say to the effect once, Sickles told me to go to hell, you know, because Sickles was the the hot dog, he was he <laughs> wanted to destroy the army, he was just going to do whatever Dan Sickles wanted to do kind of thing. I think if you look at it and you understand and appreciate the transition from Hooker to Mead, Hooker, Sickles' buddy, Sickles is very in at headquarters under Hooker. Mead, not a Sickles buddy. Sickles is very out at headquarters under Mead. I think what you actually have going on with Sickles at Gettysburg is rather than overconfidence, I think Sickles is actually struggling with his confidence. Mm -hmm. And I think so what you have, you know, some of the examples you cited, what you have is literally serving two masters. He's getting sometimes he's getting a dispatch from Meade. Sometimes he's getting a dispatch from how from from Reynolds. He's like, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure which one I should do. And I think what he does do on July 1st is relatively prudent. As you said, ultimately, he does more or less come to the sound of the guns, although he agonizes over it for a couple of hours because of this uncertainty, which, you know, as you guys know, leaves O.O. Howard kind of hanging on the battlefield there waiting for Sickles or Slogan yeah, to, he's, to come up. Yeah, he's up um, in the Fauna Stock House, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and Howard's waiting for somebody to come up. But it's this idea, I think, that Sickles is not overcoming confident he's getting conflicting orders from guys that he knows are not part of his crowd and he's not really sure how to handle it i do think it slows him down i do think it uh you know it impacts what he does a little bit on july 1st but ultimately he does come up with a pretty prudent and rational decision as we said to leave some troops behind at emmitsburg such that when Meade finds out sickles has come to gettysburg Meade sends Sickles basically a message. I don't want you to leave Emmitsburg. Well, Sickles had already left Emmitsburg, mm-hmm. but he'd left some troops behind. And again, that's sort of some, and again, Sickles haters will say, oh, well, yeah, you know, yeah, what he did on July 1st isn't that bad. You know, so it's like, okay, 24 hours later, I can't stand the son of a bitch. He's crazy and trying yep. to destroy the army. But on July 1st, he's not so bad kind of thing. And that's why you have to look at these people as a continuum. You know, they're good, they're bad, they have their good moments and their bad moments. Yeah, he, he's gonna he's gonna show, he's gonna make that that real-time decision how to mm-hmm. deal with it. He knows he knows he wants to go to Gettysburg. He knows Reynolds is heading up there, he knows Howard's coming up there, he knows he's part of that left wing, but he knows he's he's the big boss, so he thinks probably doesn't like him, mm-hmm. wants him to hold Emmitsburg. So he, he tries to, you know, to get some both. He does get there quick. You know, he beats, you know, he beats Slocum um, and the rest. He, you know, there's that story where he gets to Gettysburg and he meets, he runs into Howard, right? And Howard has that quote where, where according to Tremaine, he says, here you are, General, always reliable and always first. Uh-huh. That's what yeah, Howard no, says. Okay, is, is Howard <laughs> enthusiast? Do we, do we buy so, that quote? Yeah, what you guys so com- I do. Yeah, no, Howard <laughs> is, um, he talked, as we're going to talk about in a little while, Howard does speak highly of Uncle Dan wow. for sure. And I mean... You know, Howard's in this position, too, where he's coming off this post-Chancellorsville where he's got this bad reputation. He's up in the Fauna mm-hmm. Stock House and someone comes up and is like, Reynolds is wounded. And he's like, OK. And then the next thing is Reynolds is dead and you're in charge. And he's like, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, not to get 
not to get way off topic, but last weekend at the Seminary Ridge Museum, I just did a whole talk on all of this first day stuff mm-hmm. and the command friction going on with Meade and Reynolds and Howard and Sickles and all of that stuff. Howard's in a tough spot. And as I said, ultimately, mm-hmm. he's waiting, hoping, assuming he will get reinforced by both Sickles and Slocum. Yep. And ultimately, as we know, it doesn't happen until it's really too late for, for him on yep. July 1st. Yeah, and they don't get there until very late in the evening mm-hmm. is when they get That's there. foreshadowing when Sickles is sitting at the Peach Orchard wondering when his support's going to be coming. That never really Maybe. comes either. So we'll mm-hmm. talk about that here in a little bit. But it's interesting, that quote, that Howard quote, he repeated that the rest of his life. The always first, and, you know, he, he, he loved that quote. And, you know, we're not going to talk too much about the post stuff with him and Longstreet and the, the drinking and all of the stories with that. <laughs> yeah. But but the, uh, but that's the case of it. So, you know, eventually, to your point, Meade does eventually order those those last two brigades forward. Um, and the, this is part of that big mad rush now to Gettysburg, right, um, as everything kind of goes on. So, you know, that plan obviously changes for Meade. The Pipe Creek plan definitely is not going to is not going to last as we're all heading up there. Um, you know, Howard, speaking of Howard, we're thinking about him now, you know, he's going to take Buford and extend that left line, put them down Emmitsburg Road to kind of extend the line, protect that flank. When they get there, you know, his Sickles is going to be kind of told by Slocum, who is going to be the commanding officer at the time while Hancock is going back with, with him, you know, to mass on, to mass on Cemetery Ridge. And, and this is when it gets kind of confusing with where he's supposed to go. And this is when John Geary shows up with his 12th, right? And, and, and we talk about things like what the, the word position means, which is what the word bivouac means, and all the things yeah. that kind of get, get carried on with this, specifically about where they ultimately got. Talk about the Samuel R. Johnson story, all that stuff we'll, we'll talk about. Right. But 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 the reality is what where ultimately they were placed is going to kind of tell the story for probably the next 12 hours once they get there, where they're supposed to go. Yeah, yeah well, a couple, couple thoughts there. First of all, for our Hancock listeners in the audience, we got to give Hancock a shout out because yeah. it is Hancock, I think, who realizes, okay, Gettysburg is a good position, but can be easily turned. And that's why some, some 12th Corps troops ultimately and some of the Ironbird Brigade end up over at Culp's Hill, but Geary's guys, the night of July 1st, morning of July 2nd, end up quote unquote down by a range of hills south of town. And I think that's important for, for Monday morning quarterbacks to remember. These Most of these guys have never been to Gettysburg before, and nobody is saying you go to Little Round Top, you go to Big Round Top, you go to Devil's Den kind of thing. It's it's a very, it's a vague go to that range of hills south of town. But anyways, while Geary is basically going out there, Sickles in the third corps is arriving on the field during the evening hours and Sickles' troops up through Humphrey's division are really still filing onto the field well past midnight. So a lot of times I hear people say, well, you know, me put Sickles on the left flank because he didn't expect any action there. No, no, he didn't. That's kind of the marching orders and that's where Sickles goes in and he files in on on Cemetery Ridge. Uh, it's going to be then the morning of the second. I don't want to get too far ahead, but it's mm-hmm. going to be the morning of the second then, or sometime after midnight, sometime after midnight, you know, which qualifies as the morning, but sometime after midnight when Meade arrives up on Cemetery Hill, Sickles is there, Howard is there, you know, Sickles and Howard have had a nice meal with Elizabeth mm-hmm. Thorne in the gatehouse. So they're probably feeling good about that. But Meade arrives at some point during those morning hours 
gives Sickles verbal instructions, verbal orders, which have become the heart of so much controversy. Well, that, that's where it brings up the William Payne story and the Payne map story, right? Yeah. So you figure, figure, and this, this is one of those debated things. And that's what's, like we said, what's great about this mm. is whether it's true or not, it's one of the stories you got to talk about it. So figure between two and four in the morning, so you're talking early hours, that that early dawn time of July 2nd, you know, William Payne is going to go out with, is going with Meade and they're going to reconnoitre the field. He is going to draw a map that mm-hmm. is, is again, debated whether or not it's authentic, but right. if you look at it, and it depends on who you talk to, okay, it does tell, if you believe in it, where Meade intended his cores to go. And if you look at the map, for one, it's more, very realistic as far as the terrain it's got a couple of things wrong. It's got Long Street in the middle, which he wasn't there yet. So he had Confederate positions, but it does show the roads. It does show the elevations because they were going with the Adams County map is all they had coming in. Mm-hmm. So you have those elevations. And if you look at the map, where Sickles Corps is supposed to be placed is between the Heights, Little Round Top mm-hmm. and the Emmitsburg Road. And then you've got supposed to be the Sixth Corps right. to their left, which is right. going to change. So if you're looking at that map, and if you do believe that that was the instructions that Meade gave to his corps commanders around five o'clock in the morning on that second, it's you can see where the confusion with Sickles is going to play in if you believe the map. If you put a gun to my head and made me choose, I would probably not believe the existing pain map, the pain, uh, a pain map clearly existed at the time. The reconnaissance with Payne and Meade and all those other guys clearly happened. If you put a gun to my head and it forced me to choose, I think the existing Payne map, which has been reprinted in Gettysburg Magazine and some other places mm-hmm. over the years, if I, I think New York Historical Society might be where it currently is. But anyways, I think the one that's used today is, pro- in my opinion, probably a post-war invention. But, you know, there's some smart people like Chuck Teague and that who would disagree with me on that. As you say, it's one of those debatable things. Uh-huh. I think, though, the thing is, as far as the confusion, if we go- if you go into how Meade describes the orders to Sickles. Now, I'm a big Kent Masterson Brown fan. Kent, Kent and I are friends. Uh, he called Sickle my Sickles book splendid in Meade at Gettysburg, and then he took a little bit of a shot at one of my conclusions. I think his Meade at Gettysburg is a seminal work on it. I'm going to take a little bit of a shot, though, at one of his conclusions, because he sort of portrays it as Meade grabbing Sickles by the arm, pointing the little round top and saying, I want your troops placed on that summit. That is, in my opinion, a liberal interpretation of the historical record. What, uh, what, how Meade described his orders to Sickles, I think is best represented by how Meade described it during his sworn testimony in 1864 for the Committee on the Conduct of the War. And I won't go into those orders yet because I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. So I'll pause <laughs> Right. So again, it, this brings up that that nebulous air, that gray area. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, so at the, at the end of the day, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to end up trying to place these guys. Now, whether or not Geary's 12th, whether they got to, wasn't called Little Round Top then, but, you know, th- that the hill there, whether it was yeah. Patterson, Swisher Hill, whether it was wherever it was, it was probably west of Tan- Tawnytown Road, but wherever it was, there, there's question about where they were supposed to go. Right. And, you know, and what, what else doesn't, what else, what else does not get a lot of discussion at this point about Meade is his mindset, because you mentioned the 1864 conduct of war thing. 
And he talks a lot about how a lot of his intention was he didn't know if he was going to be offensive or defensive at Gettysburg right. at this point. Right. And, and that's a, that is a huge factor as we look at the placement of where Sickles ultimately goes at yep. the Peach Orchard. Because if you're firing an offensive attack, and we're going to talk about that because there's that report where he said he was going to that you know we'll, we'll jump ahead was war conference that he has on the third later but the second later but if you're going to launch an offensive attack you're going to launch it from the left side it's going to be from the peach orchard and we'll talk about that so if you're not sure if you're going offensive or defensive and you're getting wishy-washy messages and you're already coming into the town kind of unsure of what's going on it puts you in a tough spot and there's no there's no question that all this stuff is playing on sickle's mind even though he never admits it and that's the problem yeah i think there's a lot of things playing on sickle's mind obviously there's the chancellorsville effect people will always point to hazel grove at chancellorsville sickle's is trying to avoid hazel grove for anybody who doesn't know who's listening at chancellorsville sickle's was in a salient position called Hazel Grove. He obeyed Hooker's orders. He pulled out of Hazel Grove. Confederate artillery came in after him, basically pounded the Union line out of position. Everyone always assumes Sickles is trying to avoid a repeat of Hazel Grove. It makes sense. That was a horrific experience for the Army of the Potomac. It was only roughly two months to the day earlier. Problem with Hazel Grove is Sickles. We've never found an account from Sickles. We found it from others, but we've never found an account from Sickles where he says Hazel Grove is is what what uh, you know caused me to do what I did. Chancellorsville is playing on Sickles' mind and what he often talks about. And remember, folks, the guy lives for another fifty years. He gives a lot of interviews, speeches, all that stuff. What he always says when he talks about Chancellorsville is the idea of basically not being another Howard, being on the flank, having the enemy come pouncing out of the woods on me. I wanted to get out of the hole I was in and get out towards the commanding ground. That's one thing that's playing on him. We talked about him being on the outs with headquarters. That's two things playing on him. Last but not least, and I want to pause here because I want to make sure no one watching or listening thinks we're making excuses for Sickles. I'll be happy to render what I think my final judgment is on Sickles <laughs> at the end of this. But to the point of, Darren, you used the word on making it understandable. Is it understandable? Today, we are conditioned to think of Meade's line at Gettysburg as that fish hook. And I see this so often on social media. Sickles, mm-hmm. the idiot, violated the interior lines of the fish hook. Folks, I'm not aware of any point in the battle where anybody said, rally around the fishhook, boys. <laughs> that is a post, that is a post-battle invention. The earliest references I've seen to it refer to as a, as a horseshoe. Point being, and point that, and I'll start ranting here. I'll forget what my point is. No, <laughs> point being, point being, if you get on the ground, you haven't been there before, you don't have aerial maps, you don't know about the fishhook, there's no Hancock Avenue to kind of guide you from here to there, kind of thing. Uh, it's not as readily apparent that you should be in that straight line. Now, we'll still come back to Meade's orders to kind of qualify that. But I think confusion with all of these factors, a fraction of width we only talked about, is confusion is, in my opinion, understandable. Disagree with me. Disagree with Darren. Disagree with Mary. I think it's understandable. Yeah. Yeah, I, you, I you think can even, you can even, I was gonna say, you even make an argument that was the Fisher didn't even exist at the beginning of that July 2nd. No, it was, such a, yeah. it was all it was when they say, right. I mean, the impression was they had this sperm fish hook set up from Cubs Hill all the way down. They don't realize that the you know, it, it, again, go back to that pain map. If you're gonna believe that. 
the end of the Union line is anchored near Emmitsburg Road. Right. It's not right. anchored on a little round top. So if you're gonna, it's depending on how you follow it, um, the fish hook's not really a thing until the end of the second angry when they get pushed back anyway. Yeah. And so the impression is they had this firm line, elbow to elbow, right? Exactly. And then he just said, YOLO, I'm going for it. The hell of it. I'm going exactly. for it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's the problem. Sorry to interrupt you, Mary. I know you're going to no, say No, 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 no worries. Howard being in his head, I think, is definitely the case because Howard in his memoirs does defend Sickles um, with what he does. He said, Sickles' position was questioned. It was outside of the natural line from Ziegler's Grove to the Round Tops. But as there was no cavalry there and no masses of other troops to protect his left, it was fortunate cir circumstances that Sickles had pushed out as he did, simply that it gained time for General Meade and secured round tops against capture. <laughs> so Howard is, uh, he's thrown a little bit of shade at Hooker there, I think, for, you know, basically like, well, remember what happened to me? But I think that, you know, Howard is looking at what happens to Sickles after how his reputation, like how he's blamed for mm -hmm. this and, and thinking, okay, I understand what this guy is going through and I'm going to say, I know why he did what he did because of what, and he you know, saw. and you know, a lot of times when people would support Sickles in the post-war years, critics will say, oh, you know, they're being influenced by Sickles' whiskey and his cigars and his hookers and all of that stuff. Folks, would Oliver Howard be influenced by any of that stuff? I rest my case. No, nope. I, I don't think he would. I think he just, he, um, he definitely looked at what happened and was like, yeah, this is what he's trying to do with this. Yeah, I mean, and just look how the how it goes on. So the night of the, the night of the first of July first, you know, you've got me telling, you know, telling Sedgwick, you know, I intend to make a vigorous attack on the enemy. So he's telling other corps commanders that he's still thinking offense. He's going to he's going to tell Halleck in Washington he will attack if he thinks he has a reasonable chance of success. So the night of the first, he's thinking he's he's giving the incentive the you know the the uh, images there that he's going to be doing on offense. So then when it turns into the second is when everything kind of gets messed up. So early in the morning you've got you know Captain Captain George Meade, the son of the son of right. Yeah. He's going to get he's going to go check on that Sickles position. Um, to find, and he's going to let him know a couple things. One, where General Meade's headquarters is located, because you got to know where that is. And he also wants to find out if Sickles guys are in position. Now, again, this position he means ready to go, you know, ready yeah. to fight, versus you know, sitting there in camp, which they were. As a matter of fact, when Captain Meade got there, Sickles is sleeping. He's still in bed when yeah. he gets there. So he's, yeah. he's so he wakes up with you know his pillow head as you know his bed head there you know was <laughs> trouble gets out of bed and so he wants to know roughly where he's supposed to go george randolph he's going to go to henry hunt and ask him for his opinion on where he should help place the artillery when general meade gets sickles message from his son saying hey where am i supposed to be he says what my general views were were intimidated to what was to, was to occupy the position that I, I understood general hancock had placed general geary the night before right and that brings up the question of and people take that quote to think Sickles didn't know where Geary was. Right. Of course he knew where Geary was. He absolutely knew where Geary was, but he's not in he's not in position. And, and, and so, you know, it just it just goes to show again, it just goes to show the, the mindset of where they were at the time, where everything is kind of moving around. And a lot of it's that semantical talk. Yeah. I want you, I want you to go where Geary's men were in position. Well, I didn't see them in position. That doesn't mean I didn't see him. It just means I didn't see him in position. They're, right. they're in camp. They're hanging out. So he wants to know, where am I supposed to go where Geary's men were positioned? He didn't see yeah. them in position. 
Yeah, then, I, I don't I don't have exact quotes in front of me tonight, but just from memory, right? I think Sickles, one of the lines he uses at some point is that Gary didn't occupy a position, or maybe he says a line that they were only masked in the vicinity. Now I do think, you know, I, I do think there's a couple of there's at least three key points to Meade's orders. Basically, as Meade later said they existed, was that uh, extend the left of the second corps, occupy that range of hills, plainly visible, if practicable, to occupy it. Now, again, people, you know, I've heard, oh, no, he, he didn't say if practicable. That's George Meade saying it, not me. That's George Meade saying it. And last but not least, you know, you know take, um, take Gary's place and that sort of thing. And I think this is a, this is a good example whoever you think is right, wrong, or if you're in the middle or whatever, this is a good example where what could have been best served would have been by having a staff officer come out and basically saying, here, here, I want you to go here. Um, you know, I've been taking a tap and it's interesting if I could editorialize for a minute, mm-hmm. my book, uh, my sickles book came out in 2009 and was heralded, you know, by people like Scott Hartwig, but I mean, John Heiser, people heralded for being fair and balanced and not trying to grind an ax against anybody. I just wanted to kind of know in my own head, what do I think happened? And it's so conflicting a lot of times you can't tell her that. But um, uh, when Kent Masterson Brown's Mead book came out, people kind of started to come back and say, a, a, a couple people, you know, a handful of people, right? The internet, right? But a handful of people kind of started coming back and said, oh, Hessler, he's making excuses for, 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 for sickles and all that stuff. And we're not making excuses because at the end of the day, you can take a military interpretation of this, Sickles, follow the damn orders, extend the left of the second corps, put your line on that hill. You can do that. I'm saying more from a management, difficult subordinate, I don't get along with this guy perspective, whatever take you want to put on it. If, if, if you realize you have a guy over here who's struggling, not getting the message, everybody would be better served by just having somebody come out and say, come here, come here, come here, put your guy right here, problem solved. And that didn't happen. And it's, it's a recipe for disaster. I, you know, I call this a classic failure to communicate because we were talking about it before the show started, Darren. It's not an instance of sickles twirling the mustache in 19th century style. (laughs) I hate me. I'm going to destroy the army today, folks. (laughs) That's not what's going on, people. And if you think that's what's going on, you're listening to the wrong show right now. <laughs> Click stop and go find somebody who thinks that's what that's what happened. I think it's a classic failure to communicate. And, you know, it's tragic, obviously, because a lot of people um, lost their lives in the process. And all I wanted to do when I started my work, and I'm glad to see people of like mind here, I just wanted to kind of understand, okay, how much of this is BS? How much of this is myth? How much of this is reasonable? And I think I came down to an area in my head where it's reasonable. People may or may not disagree with that. Uh, there's no doubt that, you know, you can, you can argue back and forth. And we, we, I was telling Mary this morning, we we're talking, it seems like the needle on sickles, probably thanks to your book and a lot mm-hmm. part, Jim, is kind of going up a little bit. A little bit. Because, I mean, I've gone back yeah. 20 years. Sickles went from yeah. this guy kidnapped the Lindbergh baby yeah. to, to New Coke. And then he went on and on and on. And then yeah. now now he's like, you know something? I don't like him. I get it. But, right? Exactly. And then it, go, it, it, it really comes back to what you think of Mead. Do you, do you, do you read Gelzo or do you read Masters and Brown on Mead? Kind of falls where you think about Sickles in a lot of cases, I've noticed. Right? Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. It just, it just, it's just what, what I've, what I've noticed certain people talking about it, but there's no doubt that the ground that he ultimately ends up on, he did not like. And, you know, uh, Thomas Raffrey, Lieutenant Colonel from the 71st, the Excelsior, he has that quote. He says, it was quite springy and marshy with thick grown growth of bushes massed by woods in broken rocky grounds in our fronts and afforded the most excellent position for the rebels to take position without risk. He was put in that tough spot wherever it ultimately was. And to your point, Jimmy mentioned a bit ago about Hazel Grove. I think it was more about being flanked versus mm-hmm. being knocked off. Very if he cool. started if he started the peach orchard, it was asked to move back, that'd be more of a comparable to Hazel Grove. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it was more the Howard thing. But um, but regardless, whatever position they were on, you know, George Randolph admitted with Henry Hunt that that was not a place that it was an unfavorable place for artillery. Yeah. Um, and it was low ground. Yeah, mm-hmm. Sickle, you know, Sickles refers to it in some correspondence with Henry Hunt later on. It's in the Batchelder papers. I wanted to get out of my hole. That's why we often call it Sickles's hole. Now, again, I do want to be balanced here. I will, we can get on the field and go through this interpretation and somebody will point at that big hill, little round top on our left and say, yeah, but if you're up on that hill, you can see the enemy coming. There's no easy answer for that. There's no account that has Sickles and his staff going up on little round top and saying, well, you know, hey, pretty good view. Let's put everybody, everybody here kind of thing. And that's, that's certainly a flaw in in, in any pro Sickles argument that anybody's going to make. It's fascinating today. Everybody seems to be coming out of the woodwork saying, no, 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 little round top isn't important. It's not important. Yet Sickles made a catastrophic mistake for not positioning his troops up here. And again, (laughs) it's like, wait a minute, is it important or not? And what it is important as little round top is important, if nothing else, uh, other than obviously having a barrier to anchor your flank. But it is important as a point of observation. I think, and I put on my amateur psychology hat in recent years, I've characterized Sickles as an emotional decision maker. You know, and that's a real thing, folks. Uh, you know, I got my PhD at www.google.com, just like anybody else can these days. But there's rational decision makers. George Mead, for example, might be a rational decision maker. And there's intellectual or intellectual decision makers. And there's emotional decision makers, a guy like Dan Sickles. And the thing I think with emotional people is they tend to get tunnel visioned. I'm in, I'm in the slow ground. I got to get out of the slow ground and, and I got to get forward. I got to push forward. And I, I, I think part of it, you might get tunnel visioned a little bit, push forward, not so much worry about the obvious benefits of the hill on that flank, because you want to, you see these, you see Hawks Ridge in front of you and you see Trussell's Woods and all this other stuff in front of you. And you want to push forward beyond that. And like you said, get some commanding ground where you feel your artillery will be better served, where your troops can deploy and maneuver. And, you know, and it's not a great explanation, but I think it's probably as good of an explanation as any for why he didn't just go up the little round top and say, well, okay, if I'm worried about getting flanked, I'll put my guys up here and we'll see the enemy coming a mile and a half away. I think the only the only reference to Round Top, and again, it wasn't even called Round Top then, was was mm-hmm. Randolph saying the line extended the base of the hill where the signal station was, which we know was on Round Top. So, so yeah. you know they were they were in that area. Yeah, Bernie um, Bernie says in his report something to the effect of like at seven a.m. we were posted at Round Top, subject to General Sickles's orders. He says something I forget the exact quote, but he basically says that in his report. Mm-hmm. I, I think Sickles was definitely an emotional decision maker and i think it's you know his past plays into that you can see that 
coming into mm-hmm. it as well. Um, in another one that was kind of could be a bit emotional of decision maker was also General Grant in some ways too mm. with some of the stuff that he did. Um, but you know, Meade is a very different thinker, right? In terms, you know, compared to Sickles. Um, but then you also right. have this rivalry going on between them, yeah. which honestly it reminds me of high school. <laughs> It does. But, and, and, you know, Mary, you bring up a great point there, though. That's where the training comes in. The engineer, which Meade is, is going to think of things in one way. You know, the cigar chomping politician from New York City. I got to take, you know, you know, I'm here to smoke cigars and kick ass. And I'm all out of cigars <laughs> kind of yeah. thing. Right. Yeah. He's going to move. He's going to, quote, unquote, take action and move forward. And where, again, maybe if Sickles had been more of the trained West Pointer, I don't think, frankly, that would have helped or hindered him in battlefield tactics. But a trained West Pointer might have said, well, you know, OK, I can use this ground here and been more of an engineer by training. And I think that might be an area where the lack of West Point. Might yeah. Have and, him. and I think both both ways of thinking have their place on the battlefield, too, because, yeah. Yeah. you know, I mean, I mean, getting for not meaning to jump ahead too much. But I think, you know, Sickles decision does have benefits to the the, the AOP. Um, as much as it is a, it's a detriment to Longstreet as well, like with what he does with, with moving forward. So I think those two ways of thinking definitely have their place on a battlefield. And that's where well, I it, think Sickles was in some ways good as a general, that he didn't... It, well, it goes back to position. You know? We both, both Sickles and Hunt had agreed that that position was unfavorable, right? Not to mention, you've still got Buford, who's still encamped up there at the Peach mm-hmm. Orchard on that left flank, who yeah. needs to be relieved. So one of the things Sickles is going to have to do is move Charles Graham up there to relieve him, right? So he's going to be setting up, going up to that peach orchard. But again, he's still thinking, okay, I can move Graham up there because I know I'm getting support on my left at some point. And I think that I think that was in his head the whole time. I think he was, the clock was his head was running. And we'll talk about the recon he does with Burdan and the third main guys here in a bit. But you know, I think he, I think Sickles thought all along he was going to get relieved or get supported. I think that just, it just seems that that was the one constant I thought going as I, as I always think about Sickles. You know, the sixth ends up being late. They're supposed mm-hmm. to come down the Ta- Tawny Town Road. They got to come from a different direction. That's why the six is going to be on the left because they're going to come right in and just set right up. But, um, but again, you know, if, if Graham's going up there, you know, so you're looking about 9.30 or so on July 2nd, um, you know, Randolph's going to start moving some artillery around. He, you know, this is when he's going to put uh, Judson Clark's first New Jersey Battery B up there. You know, he is uh, up near the Peach Orchard. So he's kind of setting the groundwork for that move up there at that point. Because I think he realized that that was going to be, that was going to be a big part of it. Yeah, you know, that's... Um... I've had that sort of posed to me before. When do you think this got into Sickles' head? How early do you think he was thinking about making this move and and that sort of thing? And what we should remember, too, is he's got skirmishers out along the Emmitsburg Road, really from the night of the first, the evening of the first, when they get up on the battlefield. He's got skirmishers running Emmitsburg Road, Sherfee Farm, and then kind of up the road to um, um, to connect with other skirmishers. Yeah, we mentioned before the um, the troops that he's left behind at Emmitsburg. Well, they're now coming onto the battlefield on the morning of the second, too. So I do think 
whether it's the troops coming up from Emmitsburg or the trains that have been left behind, uh, that Sickles is uh, uh, probably, at least in the morning, still thinking about, okay, I want to do something to make sure I at least cover cover these guys when they came in. You know, one of Hancock's staff officers has a, an interesting quote. He says something to the effect of, it's too bad Sickles came onto the field via the Emmitsburg Road because it caused him to overestimate the importance of it. And we can debate the efficacy of that comment or not. But I do think everything he's still got coming in from Emmitsburg, like you said, the clock is going in his head. And I think he is he is running plays, so to speak, all morning, you know, to try to make sure he's got at least some coverage out towards Emmitsburg. And he knows that, you know, he he knows that something's going on in his front. You know, about 10 o'clock in the morning, he's going to send Hiram Dan out there with those, those first and second U.S. sharpshooters to recon that position. He'll go out to where the, the, the amphitheater is out there and he'll, you know, he'll run into Cabinets Wilcox, the great Cabinets Wilcox, I call him, <laughs> my favorite, my favorite names ever, you know, back at Anderson's division. So they, he knows they're out there. And I think once Sickles realizes that he has troops in his front, um, I think the anxiety that the pucker effect, as you, you know, I like to call it, is going to start to work and is going to start working for him. Um, you know, he's, Buford is going to ultimately get relieved by, by Graham. He'll leave Kayla's uh, battery behind the ones from the first day. Um, and he's, he's going to try to strengthen that line. But the thing about it, though, is while this is going on, and this is what I think a lot of people want to understand, is while this is all going on, Tremaine, his aide, is beating a path back and forth to the Leicester house. He goes five times total from Sickles' line back to the headquarters just to try to get an idea of what's going on, to report to Meade you know, you know, what's happening, you know, he, um, you know, Meade is going to respond basically by sending one, another one of his top sales got him, Edward, Edward Shriver to kind of inspect those lines at this point, not just a third, but all of them. But, you know, Sickles is hanging around out there trying to get clarification on what's going on. Yeah. He's sending his best mm -hmm. aid back and forth. And it's by all accounts, whenever Tremaine goes to see Meade, Meade either, is too busy for him or is focused on different things. But I think it leads to that frustration that keeps building for, for sickles. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the one thing going back to the sickles told me to go to hell analogy, sickles got 11, 11, third by 11, 11, 30 in the morning. Sickles himself goes to headquarters and basically requests assistance in posting the troops. So if you're going to say sickles is just going to do whatever the hell he wants to do. He doesn't care what Meade says. He doesn't care what headquarters says you're going to, you're going to have to explain to my satisfaction and nobody ever has. Then if that's the case, why do you go to headquarters and say, look, can you come out and help me? Can you come out and help me? Um, and, you know, as we, we know how the story goes, Meade is preoccupied. Okay, commanding gen. And again, somebody said to me one time, well, did you expect Grant to walk around the field with all of his subordinates and post troops? No. But in this case, Meade is too preoccupied. Can Warren, the chief engineer, go? Yeah. Preoccupied. So then finally, Hunt, the chief of artillery, does go. But I, as, as I'm just saying here, if you really want to position this idea that Sickles has got this Machiavellian scheme going here to just destroy the army. And it really doesn't matter what Meade tells them. Why do you go to headquarters? 
to ask for help? Why do you go to headquarters and say, hey, come out and help me? Maybe Sickles is saying, look, I got a better idea. Can you come out here and take a look? That's very plausible. But why even go to, if you're just going to do whatever you're going to do, then why go to headquarters in the first place? Yeah, he so. even, asked, even asked to send Butterfield. And he gets turned down for Butterfield. Oh, well, Butterfield's yeah. Doing, you know, the cheapest stuff. I mean, if you say, can I have Warren? No. You know, can I have, you know, can I have Butterfield? No. He's like, well, can I have Hunt again? Oh, okay. I guess I'll reluctantly send you Hunt again. And so, you know, he, he you know, he, he does. Um, and again, Sickles, first thing he's going to ask Hunt is, do you know what this guy's planning on doing? Are we still playing D? Are we going to go offense? Hunt goes, I don't know. I have no idea what his plans are. And, and, you know, and the funny part about it is you mentioned the joint conduct of the war committee. You know, he says afterwards in 64 that, you know, that, you know, he, he was planning on attacking from the left. And yeah, he does from say the, yeah. you know, from yeah. the Patriots. So, and so if that's the case, I know it's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking, but if you're if you're sickles and, and, and you're saying, you know, I, I don't know what's going on, and you find out that he says that, you know, Meade messes Washington on the second, saying that, you know, if, if not attacked, I will attack. Mm-hmm. Well, that would have been good good information to know. And to your point, Jim, it's not for lack of effort. He sends Tremaine back over and over again. He sends, he goes himself to find out what the deal is. Right. And, and, you know, you, you hear things about Mead, how, you know, he was sleep deprivation and all that stuff. And whatever it was, I think he was probably having too many balls in the air to deal with sickles at that point. Yeah. I think, but, that, yeah. And, and that's fair. You know, and I, and I, and that's not a slight on Mead. I mean, you're the, no. you're in the big chair. You're the big boss. You got to worry about, you know, God knows what Howard's doing. He's probably running up and down the street. Oh my God! <laughs> running from butterflies or something. But but whatever whatever it is 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 he's got a lot going on. But Sickles, you know, he's going to ultimately ask Hunt for permission to set that full lineup. And Hunt's like, well, I don't have the authority, right. you know. So right. he's like, I you know, I I, I can't help you out. Um, but you know, what, what we'll do is, you know, we'll find out what what the deal is. Sickles will send that second recon mission out. He'll send those third main guys out now under, uh, what's his name, Mo- Moses Lakeman, mm-hmm. to go back out to tour those woods. And this is when they get in that skirmish with, with Wilcox. And about 12 to 15 guys get, get uh, casualties. It goes on about 20 minutes, half hour. But again, your Sickles, you're not sure where you're supposed to be. And now you're, now you're getting skirmishing in your front now against a force that you think is probably going to be bigger than you than you really think it is. Um, it's a, it's a matter of time. So, and it's no wonder he kept sending Tremaine back for clarification. Yeah. And I think the, um, what I always refer to as the firefight in Pitzer's woods, uh, Berdan, the third main versus, versus Billy Fixon, Wilcox's guys. It's a combination, it's a combination of factors, the firefight in Pitzer's woods, which again, informs Sickles and Bernie and others in the third Corps high command that yes, those woods are occupied with Confederate enemy forces and the enemy forces appear to be moving this way. Now, again, we know in hindsight, Wilcox is not, not part of Longstreet's forces, but they don't know that at the time. They see a woods full of yeah, a couple regiments of gray guys. And, and, and the firefight in Pitzer's Woods is not a minor, you know, couple guys popping off rounds at each right. other. It's, it's a pretty spirited skirmish. So you got that going on. That would seem to reinforce, aha, my my left, my front is vulnerable. They're coming this way. 
you touched on a little bit about Buford's removal. Buford was supposed to be replaced at headquarters, uh, probably by somebody from uh, David M. Gregg's division. Mm-hmm. Pleasanton kind of screws that up. They don't get anybody over to Gregg to replace Buford until it's too late. But again, the net message is, well, great. This is this is how we're referring to my concerns about my front. We're removing my cavalry screen. So enemy in the woods, cavalry screen. Again, you've got the emotional play clock going in your head all morning. Headquarters isn't taking me seriously. And I do think headquarters is taking him seriously, but it doesn't matter what I think. What does Dan Sickles think? Dan Sickles thinks headquarters is not taking him seriously. And again, you put all that together and I got to act. Let's go. Move out, boys. Yeah. You know, headquarters isn't going to solve this for me. I got to do it. I think that's yeah. I think that's what's going through. Yeah. And I think I think a big part of it or not a big I shouldn't say a big part of it, but, you know, part of it, too. It gets back to Chancellorsville. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want this to go how it went before. I need I to sure make held- a decision and I've got to do it now or else this could turn out to be very, very bad. And I don't want to be Howard again. Yeah. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. I can't imagine like, that's probably in everybody at like all the commander's yeah. heads is I don't want to be that guy right now. And Sickles recognizes right. like, Oh, I'm, I could be in this position to do that. Um, and you know, like, yeah, Meade's got a lot going on, but of course when how or when um, Sickles does not get the answers that, you know, when he's like, can someone come down and help me out? You know, he's looking for something there to make sure he's you know it's like i don't want to make a mistake but at the same time it's like if nobody's going to give me a direct answer i gotta take charge here yeah and that goes back to what i said at the outset the confidence factor is it sickles being overconfident or is there a little bit lacking a confidence and it goes back to what i said before i think there's actually a little bit of like you said i don't want to make that mistake come on out and take a look with now again in fairness hunt allegedly says okay if rebels are in those woods I would not occupy this position. And Sickles kind of does the opposite. Rebels are in the woods, so he does occupy the position, which, again, we know the outcome of it and and all of that stuff. So there may, again, be a little bit of a headstrong kind of, well, I'm going to kind of do this at this point anyways, because the ball is is already opened, it's too late, and I got to take this position before the enemy does. You could tell at some point he's starting to think about it because he knows he has to connect with the round tops and try to connect to the second core. And he tries to, he plugs the gaps with artillery. He stretches his lines as long as he can. He makes it as far as Devil's Den with John Hobart, uh, John Henry Hobart Ward. But, but again, he, you know, he knows that, you know, he's not going to be able to, to really, to fill this line. Um, And again, I think, you know, by two o'clock that day, the second, you know, I think he's still expecting support to come up for him. I think he was, um, you know, and I think, you know, there's those, those reports that Sykes was not too keen about sending, sending a brigade up. And, you know, this, there's that rumor that, you know, they go, I don't believe it, but they, you know, they were stopping making coffee and lighting fires and all that stuff, right, which right, I don't right, think is true. Right, but right. I think, um, but I think he, I think he felt that I, you know, I will send a brigade if it's absolutely necessary, but I don't want to. And I think that was the message he probably had mm-hmm. because he didn't seem too keen on it. Um, and I think, you know, as, 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 as I keep mentioning, Tremaine keep going back and forth to that headquarters to find out. Eventually, you know, Tremaine, finally, he goes back and says, can you just at least give us some more artillery then? 
if you're not going to send us any guys, and then, you know, Meade has that quote, generals are always expecting an attack in their front. You always want more yeah, artillery, yeah. you know. And, and again, this is according to Tremaine, which is according, you have the, the phrase according to Sickles is a very common phrase you know, with a lot of the stuff. But again, um, you know, there's reports that Tremaine felt that he was being ignored, he was getting frustrated. Um, but he, but Meade does send the artillery though, you know, and, and he does authorize John Caldwell from Hancock's Corps, the first division to, to go. He does, he does authorize them if necessary to go. Um, but I think the lack of clear orders can, is, now you're talking maybe two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon now. And I think Meade, I think Sickles is still saying, can I just please have some clear orders? Cause he hasn't had a clear order yet, even going back to Tawny Town. That's true. Yeah, I think, um, you know, ultimately with Meade's orders to Sickles being verbal instead of written, we'll never truly know how clear they were at the time on the ground. I mean, we just, we just won't know that. I think, you know, but you've raised a couple times the idea of him being supported in this position. And, that you know, that was a contentious point for Sickles, Meade, their various supporters for the remainder of their lives. You know, even Division Commander Andrew Humphreys, who if anybody does not know, Andrew Humphreys is a Meade man. Andrew Humphreys is not a Sickles man. Humphreys is a Meade man. Even Humphreys seems to imply that, yeah, I was told when I moved out here I would be supported sort of thing. So that that idea, that idea of being supported, how much support were we going to get was a bone of contention with these guys. Uh, really for the remainder of their lives. You know, the, the, the cynic in the audience will say, you know, Sickles basically said, and, and Sickles later on, I think Sickles later on did realize that he screwed up. Uh, there's subtle moments of that. You know, he never apologized for it, as we know. He okay. never, but there are subtle moments where you can kind of read between the lines and say, okay, I think I see Sickles acknowledging a screw up here. When Sickles testifies before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, he says, to the effect my third corps held round top ridge until the close of the battle and you know we know for whatever the third corps did or didn't do they weren't on quote unquote round top ridge but the other thing too is sickles would say well i knew when i moved forward i knew i couldn't hold this extended position because you know it's twice as long as the position he moved out of i knew i couldn't hold this position without more troops and I thought Meade promised me more troops, you know, the second corps, the fifth corps, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So that was, it was a bone of contention with these guys forever. What was promised and critically, when was it promised? Did Meade promise it early or when Meade got out to the peach orchard and say, Jesus, you know, I, the only thing I can do at this point is bring more troops out here to kind of, to kind of patch mm -hmm. up this line. Well, he also said he thought he knew Longstreet was coming, which I don't think he did. Right, I don't think, right. He, I don't think he could possibly know that. That's a classic no. 2020 hindsight. Well, I knew Longstreet was coming. That's why I moved off. Yeah, you know and you know, you know, yeah, and that, you know, and that gets extended to, and I grabbed Longstreet and I held him by the throat and I kept the army in Gettysburg. <laughs> you know, it just gets, hey, which is one of the things that, uh, whether you love Sickles or hate him, it makes it interesting to watch him now kind of spin this story completely right. out of control as the years go by. Mm -hmm. yeah. But three o'clock, they have that war council. And I think it's 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 a war council. Not everybody realizes. They always think of the war council being the nighttime one. The picture with me with the big bug eyes. And the, oh, the yeah. Drawing Where he's now. like glaring um, at somebody in the picture. Yeah. But 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 the three the three o'clock one is the one that's interesting because this is the one where me, you know, he blows that conch shell and says, all my core commanders, I need you. Come, you know, come hither. And Sickles blows it off. He says, I mean, he's just yeah. too busy. I, I ain't coming. Yeah. 
And he's, you know, he sends an aide out to go find him and says, like, go tell Sickles to get over here. And, and this is the time where, according to Payne, we mentioned him earlier, where Meade lost his mind in anger when he found out that Sickles said he was too busy to come. And so it, it kind of goes, the point of that 3 p.m. war council, was this the meeting where they were going to talk about doing an offensive on the left side that Sickles presumptually would lead since he was there and he wasn't there to even hear about the, the mission, right? Mm-hmm. You know, is that, is that part of it? Was that why he was so mad? Um, and, and so, because if, 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 if you're in the belief that he was going to go on an offensive assault from that left side, which where it likely would have been, he would have probably had Sickles either leading it or one of the guys up front. And he wasn't even there to hear the meeting. So if that's the case, but whatever, whatever the case was, he tells Sickles, he sends an aide says, tell Sickles to come here or he's fired. You're done. He sends him, this is, this is the end of the line. You better get here. So, you know, and this is when, is when he, you know, he tells, you know, he tells Sickles is going to leave. He's going to tell his artillery chief to, you know, keep an eye out for the Rebs. And, and, and that's what's going to happen. So Randolph, this is that story where Randolph will, you know, as Sickles is going back to the headquarters is when the cannons start. And this yeah. is Randolph's cannon firing at Evander Laws, Alabamans, who are starting to come across the Emmitsburg Road now, right? And when Sickles, you know, he's told not to dismount and Meade's going to jump on Pleasant and his horse by mistake or because it's not saddled and goes riding off. Yeah. And really, this, this, is good. this is going to be the first time, really, that I think anyway, that Meade gives him direct orders, when they get out there and, you know, they get there and he finds out where Sickles' position is. And there's that famous story of, Sickles, what have you done? Well, I, yeah. I was told I could adjust my line. I told you not to march on Richmond, all those stories. <laughs> but when he, when he places Brewster and Carr along the Emmitsburg Road and says, here's where I want you guys to go, really that's the first clear order he's gotten the entire day. Well, I think the um, – I'm going to back up for a minute. I think the 3 o'clock conference is interesting – and I don't personal. I don't personally think Meade was going to uh, elaborate on plans to attack at the three o'clock conference. We never know. But what's always been interesting at the three o'clock conference to me was how much Meade downplayed its existence later. Um, he doesn't really mention it in his report. He doesn't really mention it in his testimony. And what he tends to say later is to the effect of, I was out inspecting the left and I found out General Sickles was out of position. Well, no, actually we had called, you'd call, you'd called the meeting of all the Corps commanders. As you said, Sickles doesn't want to come. Warren though, in the meantime, has gone up to check on these reports that the third Corps is out of position and finds out that the third Corps uh, is in fact out of position. So that's always, you know, that's more of my take on the three o'clock meeting. But beyond that, um, yeah, look, I mean, Mead gets out there and whether you think it's Mead's first clear order to sickles of the day, whether or not you agree with that, um, what is instructive is it's really, it's clearly the first time today that Meade has been on the ground on his left flank. Mm -hmm. And whether you want to debate whether the orders are clear and people can debate whether or not the orders are clear, there's no debating the fact that this is Meade's first visit to the left flank in daylight during the battle of Gettysburg. And um, again, what it's almost disastrous that that doesn't occur until, you know, after three o'clock in the afternoon on July 2nd with Longstreet get about to get into position, boom, with the artillery about to start uh, and all of that stuff going on. It has an unintended consequence of 
forcing me to take a look at the left flank because up to that point, you know, he doesn't think that's where the action is going to be. And whether you like sickles or not, you agree with the move, you disagree with the move. One thing that is undeniable, Longstreet has lost any element of surprise at this point. I mean, if you're hoping for a Jackson-like surprise, you know, pounce out of the woods kind of thing, that ain't happening. Because by this point, Sickles and all of his red, red alerts and the, and the recon in Pitzer's Woods and all that stuff, and now Meade kind of having to come out to ex- examine Sickles' position, all has one net effect. No more element of surprise for Longstreet. Yep. You know yep. the attack is about to land on the Union left. Doesn't give me a lot of time to prepare because his left is not in the position he wants it to be in. And look, folks, you know, again, I don't want people to think we're making excuses for Sickles. Offensive, defensive, whatever style of decision maker, Meade commands the Army. The final decision is his. And so what this does force me to do, unfortunately, is not enough time to maybe prepare the defense that he might have preferred to fight in. And, you know, the game is on. Well, it forces obviously him to be moving people off of that line that he had. He's got to yep. move Caldwell out. He's got to move Sykes out, the U.S. regulars, all those guys, you know, Tilden, Spice, all those guys. And then you have you have the action of the Wheatfield, the you know, Stony, the Rosewoods. It ends up that 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 echelon attack. What it does do though, it delays Longstreet, right? Well, and yeah. and, and that's and that's the thing too, is is he's already late because yeah. of his his fun run, he has his counter march. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, and they're, they're running out of daylight. This is going on late call, afternoon. Did you just now. call the counter march a fun run? A I, fun I run, think, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that one. All right. All right. Yeah. So he's on, his, he's on his fun run, right? And so he, he finally gets there. And so now you think about that yeah. echelon attack that's supposed to go right down the line. And now by the time you get to Ambrose Wright hitting at the angle and, and reportedly he's going to get there and Lane's gone and Posey and Mahone aren't coming, they're out of gas at that point and they're running late. So that hammer of Dorsey Pender and Rose, that never gets to happen. And so if you are going to look at Sickles as far as how he does impact that second day, it's maybe the timing. It's how how he did maybe force Hood to swing around first instead of McClaws hitting and then Hood, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of impacts. It definitely, it definitely forces Longstreet to adjust on the fly. Uh, you can make the observation or opinion that Longstreet, when Longstreet carefully prepares versus adjusting on the fly, is a better offensive general. It By forcing Hood to go further around to the right, it definitely stretches out the Confederate position and dilutes the impact of the attack. At the end of the day, you know, the million dollar question with all of this is what if Sickles stays in position? What happens? You know, and of course the serious historian has to caveat that they don't do what if history and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I always tell people it, that argument doesn't matter because you can look at what happened and a couple of things happen. As we said, whether you think Longstreet was hurt by being delayed and reaching Cemetery Ridge, or whether you think the Union was hurt by incurring more casualties, it is, in my professional opinion, an undeniable fact that Longstreet will chew up casualties fighting for Devil's Den, the Wheat Field, the Peach Orchard, and the Emmitsburg Road, which we know after the results of July 3rd, ultimately become meaningless in forming and, and, and causing Robert E. Lee to 
win the Battle of Gettysburg. Robert E. Lee does not win the Battle of Gettysburg, and Longstreet is chewed up fighting for all of these meaningless positions. The meaningless position argument, in my mind, is incontrovertible. And I'm not talking about because sometimes the guys get too hung up with, well, is it a defense in depth and all of that stuff? And they pull out the military textbooks and all that stuff. I'll say it again, Longstreet, heavy casualties fighting for meaningless positions that do not help Lee in winning the Battle of Gettysburg. I mean, I've said that now three times. So from that point of view, whether or not Sickles helped the Union cause, whether or not Sickles hurt the Union cause, Sickles's move did not cause the Union Army to lose the Battle of Gettysburg. The Union Army still wins, maybe in the nick of time, but they still win. Hood and McClaws are basically shot up in the process of it. That is the actual result of Sickles' move forward. It is. Whether or not it created more numeric casualties in the Union Army can be debated, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, Union Ar- Army of the Potomac is a bigger army. They, I hate to be cold about it, but they can afford to lose higher numbers yeah. than Hood and McClaws can. Yeah. Well, they end up having to fight three hours in a 26-acre wheat field, you know, at George Rose's wheat fields. Oh, back and forth and back and forth with Fifth Corps, Third Corps, Second Corps, Fifth Corps again. It, it goes back it's and forth. Through the re- exactly. Yeah. And they all, end up, they all end up where exactly where they started. And what that does result, of course, is it does create that third day that Pickett's charge where it would not have been necessary if they were able to roll right through that. So, well, yeah, I, I just you brought up Pickett's charge. That's been a throughput in all of my works. So when I did this, the Sickles book, then Wayne and I did the, the Pickett book, and then mm-hmm. Brett and I did uh-huh. the Peach Orchard book. The importance of how this, the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road, carries through to Pickett's Charge and the third day has been the throughput of all of my work, because that's exactly right. Lee captures the Peach Orchard. He captures the Emmitsburg Road. It convinces him. It encourages him to continue the assault on July 3rd. And again, we know what the outcome is of that. Not favorable to Robert E. Lee. Yeah, it forces him to make that march. um, And people can debate that whatever, and Peter, it depends on who you talk yeah. to about that. But it, it ultimately, it, it's it's a result of the failed day. You know, um, and I think I think you have a good point. Sickles may not have won it, but he didn't lose it, right? No. And, and, and the question, you, and you kind of alluded to it a bit ago, is if he stayed in that position and they were able to pivot down the Emmitsburg Road and, and try to roll up that Union line, how is that going to play out? How would that have been any yeah. different? Because it, it assumes... For one, you're exposing your right flank to the entire Union line all the way down, right? How 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 is that going to change anything anyway? Yeah, I, and, you know. And so and so be, I, yeah, and I and again I got to because because this is a topic I'm passionate about. Again, I often hear colleagues, professional historians, say if Sickles is back on Cemetery Ridge, Longstreet blindly attacks up the Emmitsburg Road and allows his flank and his rear to be raked by a Sickles and maybe a fifth corps and a sixth corps who should be in position on Cemetery Ridge. Where does it say Longstreet is going to attack up the Emmitsburg Road no matter what happens? Where does it say that? It doesn't. 
Robert E. Lee does not give a direct order to Longstreet that says attack up the Emmitsburg Road no matter what. Longstreet's instructions eventually are to envelop the enemy left and drive it in. I think they're looking for the enemy's left wherever it is. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's he, my hot take. Yeah, on yeah. It. His 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 job is definitely to to find the Union. You know, it's you have you have um you know what Hood's going to try to do to try to go to Round Top. He's going to try to find that Union left and try to roll it up. You know, whether it be using the Emmitsburg Road as that pivot point, I'm just thinking of the, the the plans that he ultimately, you know, that when when Lee corrects Longstreet and reports to me, no, I want this is where I want you to be. You want yep. to do that whole thing. Yeah. So I think um, I think the key was where the Union Army was. But at the end of the day, when when Longstreet finally made it back from his fun run there, he did not expect to see his the troops right in his face like that. Exactly. And it, yep. and it did cause that delay that ultimately. And you're losing daylight, and that's the thing too. And you're also making your troops tired. They're yeah. having to fight yeah. more than what they expected. So I think when people look, you know, to, to, to you know conclude all this, I think when people look at Sickles in as some sort of miscreant who had his, he, I don't care what Meade says, I'm doing my thing. This is what I'm doing. I it's just factually wrong. It's just wrong. Whether you look at the quotes, you look at the battle reports. You look at everything. The fact of the matter is that he tried to get clarification several times from headquarters. And for whatever reason, he wasn't getting his answers done. And it, and I think he did what he did. I think he did in his heart, he felt was doing the right thing. I, I think agree. he felt he had the leeway to do it within reason. Yeah. And and then when he got up there, he realized that you know he he didn't have enough guys. And that was the problem. That's what got him. Um, and it just it just led to uh, his his core getting wrecked in, in, mm-hmm. in his career basically being ends and him losing his leg. But um, but I think that I think this concept that he's this scoundrel, I think is um, I think it's just historically wrong. I do. I I I totally agree. I mean, I said this earlier when when I first started coming to the battlefield and you saw those interpretations. Sickles wanted to destroy the army. My favorite. Sickles wanted to be president. Somehow moving to the peach orchard is going to put you in the White House. I've, I've never, under, yeah, I've never understood that one. Well, that's, sort that's, of thing. What ben, that's what Ben Buren did. So he's just following. Yeah, right. So, you know, the, the, <laughs> the what, the what of the story is relatively well known at this point, right? We know Sickles doesn't go to Little Round Top. We know he goes to the peach orchard. We know there's heavy fighting. The what of the story, to me, the why of the story was always more interesting. And to me, the why of the story, because it's certainly open to interpretation at the end of the day, you can't say with certainty what people were thinking or that. But I do think if you objectively look at the why of the story, why did he do it? Was it you know right, wrong, or in between, or that sort of thing? If you look at the why of the story and you do it with an unbiased mind, I don't, like you said, I don't think the historical record supports the villainous, I'm going to destroy the army today kind of thing, because I hate George Meade. If you look at it objectively, the historical record doesn't, doesn't, um, doesn't support that. I could spend the rest of my life every day. I'm tagged on social media. Hey, James Hustler, somebody's criticized Sickles. You want to come in on this? <laughs> and I avoid that stuff because I could spend the rest of my life doing that. Uh, my work is my published work, which is in the public domain is tried to be unbiased and balanced on this, but not, portray sickles is a deviant monster kind of thing folks this is dan sickles we're talking about it's not adolf hitler it's not genghis khan it's dan sickles you know and i think there's there's good and there's bad and 
in everybody, but if nothing else, the guy sure as hell is entertaining. And I don't know half of what we would talk about at Gettysburg without him. Oh, I, I would agree. And as somebody who's, uh, who's the general I love to study is, you know, he kind of goes through the same thing. He's his, his historical record is not good. And I mean, I'm just kind of starting out on my journey with trying to, I don't know, I don't want to say like, just say that there's more to Howard than Chancellorsville that, you know, there's there's a lot to him that is very, you know, all I hear is like, oh, he ran or he runs 11th mm. Corps. And it's like, there's more than that to him. So I think he, he like Sickles and Howard seem kind of like kindred spirits in that way. That I, I'm glad you said that because I forgot to mention that because I admire the devotion that you have to Howard. <laughs> now, I'm, per- I'm personally not a Howard enthusiast. Mm-hmm. I hate when we say fan with history, I, yeah. but I, but I, but what I admire about you and your devotion to Howard, and we always say this in our podcast, the easiest thing in the world is to say, well, you know, I'm a Gettysburg expert. John Buford was a great general. George Meade is overlooked. Hancock was superb. Those are all cliches. The hardest part with history is taking the challenging people and trying to say, okay, you know, they have a, whether it's Dan Sickles, who's just challenging from start to finish or Howard, you know, who has issues with his military, taking these challenging people and trying to unwind and unpack the story. That's the hard part, people. And so I I give you a lot of respect for what, you you know, what you're all doing with, uh, with Howard. Thank you. Yeah, we definitely try to show him in a, you know, just show he's not perfect. Uh, he made his mistakes, right. but he's more that I mean, he goes on to the Western theater to, you know, he wins at Ezra Church and all that, um, you know, and he's on the March to the Sea. And, you know, doing this episode with Sickles, like I saw a lot more. I'm like, wow, these these two are kind of polar opposites in their personalities, but there's a lot there. And you have Howard in his memoirs. He's defending Sickles and saying, I understand. And I'm, I get it. I'm sensing the next book here. Dan Sickles and Oliver Howard. <laughs> parallel lives. Dude, we got to put Gettysburg in the title. So the parallel yeah. lives of two Gettysburg warriors. All I can think about is the old odd couple TV show. Right. You know, oh, Sickles comes it. home yeah, Sickles and and with some girl. Howard's are going, another one? Seriously, Dan? <laughs> you know, but I think it's great. But anyway, so I think I think we can drop it up here. I think we, yep. we can go on and on all night about Sickles. Yeah, we could, right? He did a lot of great stuff with the battlefield afterwards. And, you know, never even mentioned Mrs. Wilmerding. So I guess, we, you know, there's only so much we're going to have fun with that. Yeah. But needless, suffice it to say, he is a colorful guy pre, during, and post-Civil War. And what's great about history is you can study them. You don't have to like them, but right. you can study them and you can be fascinated by them and you get to make your opinion and you get to make your own decision. The secret is to read as much as you can. I highly suggest reading your book. I think Thank it's you. the best book ever written on, on him. I think it's, 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 I've read it many times. And it's, it's a fascinating because I, it's one of the few books I agree with just about everything. Because I'm like, when you talk about sickles, we mentioned that before, it's that negative thing. I'm like, you know, I never thought that. And I read this. I'm like, wow, it's another one. You know, this is this is really really good. I'm not the only. I'm not the only one. So, um, read, question what you read, and, and try to make up your own decisions. Right. And go from there. So, like we said, Mary, he has two legs to stand on. I knew he did. He does. And Jim, do you have any final words? <laughs> No, I just want to say thank you again for making tonight's episode a boot Dan Sickles. <laughs> I got to work. I got to work on that Canadian accent. You know, I grew up in Buffalo. A boot. I'll, I'll get it yep. back. So. <laughs> Thanks well, for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you very much for your time tonight and for that discussion. It was it was awesome. And 
glad we were able to talk about Uncle Dan tonight in a, um, I think, what's, I think what's a little next? bit more of a positive light than what he. I think so. I, ho- I hope people listen to this will sit there and say, you know what, maybe I'll just check it out. Maybe I'll read, read Jim's book. Maybe I'll have a little bit of an open mind. I may not like the guy, but maybe right. I can at least yeah. understand. Maybe there was more to it than everything I heard on, um, you know, on the internet. Yeah. And let days, me just so. say, as somebody who is team mead, I am totally team sickles on you know what he does on july the second i do understand why and i don't think he deserves a lot of the criticisms that that he gets he doesn't he does not so mayor what's not what's coming up for us what's new Um, what's next so we will be having our trivia night our round table on the 23rd so wednesday night at six o'clock via zoom if you would like to sign up for that info at civil war breakfast club Dot com. Um, we will be taking that weekend off from an episode, but still during our Facebook Live. But we will back be back with you the first weekend of April for our part two of female soldiers and spies in the Civil War. And then we will be doing an episode on Shiloh, which we are calling Shiloh 2.0. Hard to the search yeah. for Curly's gold. Yep. We're going to have fun with Shiloh once again. So Uncle Mary says thanks again. We appreciate the... Uh, <laughs> Appreciate the fun night tonight. So, Jim, again, it was a, it was a pleasure to have us with us. Hope you had a good time with this. It's always love talking to you. Love talking to you about sickles. And um, you're welcome back anytime, obviously. Yeah, let's do, let's do it again. You know, all of us Civil yeah. War podcasters, we're all supposed to hate each other, you know? Oh, but yeah, no, it's right? great. Uh, oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. But no, no, all joking aside, it was uh, a lot of fun. And yeah, I'd look forward to coming back. Yep. We'll do part Hopefully. episode 69, part due yes. with sickles. There <laughs> you go. So maybe, maybe we can get... We find ourselves at the mine sometime. We'll try to shake Faraz's hands and try to see who broke first, oh the first of the 11. We'll try to have some fun with that. We'll try to get down at the town. We'll do that soon. Exactly. Yeah. So to all our all listeners, right. have a great night, and we will see you all soon. Bye, guys. Peace out, everybody.